presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. The impact of obesity on pulmonary function, particularly obstructive sleep apnea, is especially alarming when it comes to childhood sleep disorders. You are listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Jerome Liss. Joining me to discuss the relationship between childhood sleep disorders and obesity is Dr. Sally Ward, head of the Division of Pediatric Pulmonology, as well as the medical director of the Sleep Laboratory at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. Welcome, Dr. Ward. Thank you, Dr. Liss. We know that healthy sleep is necessary for normal growth and development in children, and about 30% of parents report sleep problems in their children. Myself being a neurologist and not being a pediatrician and not being a sleep expert as yourself, how do we as physicians help identify when a child is suffering from a sleep disorder and they just aren't you know, overtired or... Uh, having other issues? I think the, the first thing is to include sleep as one of the mainstays of health. Just as you wouldn't take care of a child without asking about their nutrition, you should include sleep with that same importance because healthy sleep is critical for, as you say, normal growth and development. So the first issue is simply recognition that sleep is a very important part of good health. And as part of screening for sleep, asking about sleep patterns, sleep length, and sleep complaints, including snoring, which is the most important symptom of obstructive sleep apnea. Okay, because we know that the field of sleep medicine is, you know, exploding at this point, and a lot of things that we took for granted as far as uh, sleep disorders being caused by problems with sleep, we're finding that there are more sleep disorders that are causing problems, behavioral and non-behavioral. So what are the most common non-behavioral sleep disorders in children? Probably at the top of the list would be obstructive sleep apnea. Traditionally, probably if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, I would be saying, and the most common cause is hypertrophy tonsils and adenoids. And that is actually still the case that most children with obstructive sleep apnea, the etiology is big tonsils and adenoids. But in the face of the obesity epidemic, that is the latest player on the field that is creating a big contribution to the risk of obstructive sleep apnea in children. Do you find that as a pediatrician, you have children that may come in to your office that are found to have sleep disorders that are misdiagnosed with attention deficit disorder, other behavioral problems in class, are maybe just not living up to their potential, that are getting poor grades and have poor performance? You know, that can certainly happen. The impact of a poor night's sleep, even a few nights of poor night's sleep, causes measurable changes in children's cognitive function, their performance on standardized testing. And so a child who's having poor sleep night after night, which can happen with obstructive sleep apnea because sleep apnea disrupts sleep continuity and there may be an element of hypoxemia that further disrupts sleep, those children may present as being inattentive or sleepy, performing poorly in school, and may actually have a significant improvement in their ability to perform at home and at school after their sleep apnea is treated. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point that whenever a child is not doing well in their neurocognitive or behavioral function to include a good sleep history. 
It's not the answer in every case, but it's one that's treatable, so it's particularly important to recognize. So what are some of the leading causes of sleep disorders in children, you know, whether they're congenital and non-congenital causes? Well, one of the things that I do is I work each week in the craniofacial clinic here at Children's Hospital, and the reason why I'm there is because that is a group that's very high risk for sleep-related breathing problems. Any craniofacial abnormality that causes mid-face hypoplasia or micrognathia or any discontinuity between the base of the skull and the bones of the face can increase the risk for sleep apnea. So that's one area. Children with Down syndrome, one of the most common chromosomal abnormalities in childhood, is those are kids that are very high risk for sleep apnea due to their mid-face hypoplasia and hypotonia and large tongue, and they tend to be obese. And then we mentioned the otherwise normal children with big tonsils and adenoids, and then finally children with obesity. And those are the main classifications of kids who are at risk for sleep apnea. And so what about pulmonary causes, uh, like pulmonary hypoplasia and things of that sort? Well, there are certainly other pulmonary reasons for sleep disruption. Patients with asthma, for example, have a cough during sleep, which is a very potent disruptor of sleep continuity. And we've mentioned obesity already. Children with obesity are at risk not only for sleep apnea but for asthma. So sometimes they're suffering from a double whammy of both sleep apnea and asthma disrupting their sleep. Gastroesophageal reflux can cause sleep disruption. And then children who are born prematurely and have, as you say, pulmonary hypoplasia or bronchopulmonary dysplasia can have hypoxemia during sleep that we think is important to treat because it particularly interferes with growth and development. So what are some of the things that pregnant women may do that may lead to sleep disorders in in their children after they deliver? Well, if we can leave the realm of obstructive sleep apnea for a second, I think the most important advice you can give to a, a family who's expecting a new baby is the preventative and anticipatory guidance to avoid the most common behavioral abnormality of sleep, and that's behavioral insomnia sleep association type. And what that means is a child who's initiating sleep in one environment and then expected to sleep in another environment. So a baby who falls asleep in mom or dad's arms is then quietly put into the crib and then has a natural arousal from sleep sometime later, does not recognize the environment, has a fitful awakening, starts to cry, and the whole process has to be repeated. And sometimes I see those kids at age two and they're a child who's, quote, unquote, never been a good sleeper. And you can prevent all of that by simply educating families to have their child initiate sleep in the desired sleep environment. So that's probably the best advice I could give to any pregnant woman about healthy sleep in their baby. And then, of course, on a more serious note, we want to make sure that every family knows about the modifiable risk factors for sudden infant death syndrome, which occurs during sleep, and those are based on the American Academy of Pediatric Recommendations for a safe sleep environment for infants, sleeping on the back, avoiding overheating, avoiding smoke exposure, and so on. Okay, so how does obesity affect a child's sleep, and does obesity cause sleep disorders, or are sleep disorders causing children to gain more weight? and thus causing obesity? That is a really good question because there are complex interactions in both directions. The first part, does obesity cause sleep problems? It does increase the risk for obstructive sleep apnea. Studies, Some studies say a four to five increased risk for sleep-related breathing problems in children with obesity compared to their non-obese peers. The overweight causes fat deposition in the soft tissues of the pharynx, the hypopharynx, narrowing the airway, mass loading on the chest, changes lung volumes, and so 
obstructive sleep apnea can occur. Obesity also impacts the risk of asthma, and asthma can disrupt sleep. But as you also point out, there is data that suggests that short or long sleep, so sleep of the duration that's not age-appropriate, may in and of itself increase the risk for obesity. And then further hypothesis is, is that as you interfere with sleep, it interferes with the production of the hormone leptin, which is the hormone that tells you when you're full. It's the satiety hormone, and short sleepers then may produce less leptin, feel less full, and eat more. So the data is still not 100% in. I mean, some of that is preliminary, but that's, that's some of the thinking about that other relationship that short sleep may increase the risk for obesity. If you're just tuning in, you're listening on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jerome Liss, and joining me to discuss the correlation between childhood sleep disorders and childhood obesity is Dr. Sally Ward, head of the Division of Pediatric Pulmonology, as well as the medical director of the Sleep Laboratory at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. So what is the progress in the medical literature in looking at hormones and how sleep affects hormones and neurotransmitter levels in the brain? Well, some of this information actually came from a genetically predisposed rat to obesity, the Zucker rat. And I remember when I was a brand new fellow a long time ago, I read about this rat and I wondered, well, what was wrong with this particular obese strain of rat that made it different from other non-obese rats? And it turns out that it is abnormalities of these hormones. And the other thing that's interesting from a pulmonology standpoint about leptin is that not only is it a satiety hormone, but it may also be a, a respiratory stimulant. It may increase our drive to breathe. And so inhibiting levels of leptin by short sleep may worsen or increase the risk for the most severe respiratory complication of obesity, and that's the obesity hypoventilation syndrome. And those are individuals who actually have abnormal breathing control during wakefulness with hypercapnia and are at very high risk for morbidity and, and mortality. So these hormones have been known about for a while, and I think now in more recent time, in the last three to five years, their functions are becoming more and more understood. So what impact does obesity and obstructive sleep apnea have on a child's pathophysiology, and how does this affect them long-term? It's multidimensional. First, there may be impacts on neurocognitive functions, so impairment in school performance, impairment in mood and conduct, so children who are doing poorly in more than one domain, school and at home, they may actually be sleepier than their peers. So having inability to participate in normal childhood activities simply because they're sleepy, then there are risks for their cardiopulmonary function obesity and obstructive sleep apnea increase the risk for hypertension. And although we don't see too many children with systemic hypertension, it doesn't take too much of a leap of faith to think that a child who's had long-standing obesity and sleep apnea would be at risk for hypertension earlier in their adult years. And also not too difficult to imagine that these children, as time goes on, would be at risk for the cardiovascular morbidity that we think of with adult sleep apnea myocardial infarction, 
coronary artery disease, stroke, and really a shortened lifespan. So I assume that glucose intolerance and type 2 diabetes, well, they would also be a risk for that as well. Yeah, certainly obesity all by itself is a risk for that. And there's some evidence now that sleep apnea adds to that risk. And whether it's the sleep disruption, the multiple arousals during sleep related to restoring the airway patency, or is it the hypoxemia during sleep or both? But it may be that the risk for glucose intolerance really is with a double whammy, both the obesity and the obstructive sleep apnea. And again, even though obesity is it's very difficult to treat in any age group, we have good treatments for sleep apnea. Um, adenotonsillectomy can be beneficial in this population, and if that's not effective, positive pressure therapy with CPAP or BiPAP can be effective. So we can ameliorate some of these morbidities by recognizing and treating these children. Well, I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Sally Ward, head of the Division of Pediatric Pulmonology, as well as the medical director of the Sleep Laboratory at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, for helping us better understand the relationship between childhood obesity and childhood sleep disorders. Dr. Ward, thank you very much for enlightening us on a very exploding field at this time providing us with this information. Well, Dr. Lisk, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I'm Dr. Jerome Lisk. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.